I want you to join me in Revelation 4 tonight. And I'm going to let you remain seated. I'm going to read the entire chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. It's only 11 verses. And in, in my opinion, tonight and, and Lord willing, next Wednesday are two of the most beautiful scenes of worship you're going to find in the book of Revelation, maybe anywhere in the Bible. And so what is the goal of these messages? It's to go through the, the last book in the Bible, the book that is filled with promise, the book wherein most of it, the vast majority of it is yet future. You know, we read in our Bibles, we read backwards. We're looking at history that has ramifications in the present. But when you get to the book of the Revelation, we're all on equal ground. None of it, not none of it, but most of it hasn't happened yet. And so um, it, it just it stirs hope in us. It calls us to worship. It reminds us that we're born again for another world, that this world's not our home. And so we're born for an entirely different realm. Revelation chapter 4, verse number 1. John speaking, and he said, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You don't know how tempted I am just to keep going. Down into chapter number five. Because they're both glorious scenes, contain glorious scenes of worship. But tonight, I want us not only to get caught up in the glory of the Lord that's found in this passage, but I want us to be instructed in our spirits about us as worshipers, about our hearts, even our bodies if necessarily, but primarily about our hearts and worship and why we worship and for, for what reason do we worship specifically these aspects that are mentioned here in chapter 4 of Jesus. And so a lot to process tonight. And so let's pause for just a few seconds and let's ask the Holy Spirit to do the work that Jesus said he would do, that he would teach us all things. So Holy Spirit, thank you. You are God 
This is your word. Magnify Jesus to us. Magnify him on his throne to us. Expand our ability and our capacity to understand and grasp truths that are not rooted in this world, but they're rooted in eternity. And Lord, I pray you would begin to further turn us inside out to where we are less earthbound and more uh, heavenly passionate, Lord. Even as we advance your kingdom in our generation, Lord, let our hearts be at home with your throne room. Let us, let us find our identity there. Let us keep coming back there, Jesus, and catching glimpses of you by faith. And Lord, I just pray boldly. I don't know why you couldn't do it. If you want to give us the experience that you gave John, even being caught up into the third heaven to behold these things, then Lord, I volunteer tonight. I volunteer to be able to be entrusted with those visions of, of glory and beauty and the amazing sights that are reserved there in heaven are actual now in heaven. So, Lord, open up our understanding. Give us a thirst for the world to come. Lord, give us a distaste for all of the trappings of this world. And, Lord, knit our hearts together with that of the Lamb of God who's seated on the throne. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel like I've come back up here after the overflow of Sunday. It's the same just intense joy that was in the room on Sunday that's up on the stage now. Man, I just sense God's pleasure today. There's three things I want to share, you, share with you tonight, and they all deal with focus. When we're talking about prostrate worship, when we're talking about falling down before the Lord, as we're going to see the elders do here in a moment in this passage of Scripture, um, it only happens when we are really spiritually in tune with the centrality of Jesus Christ, who he is, and his sovereign rule. And as we, we are just engulfed in chaos in the globe today, it's just chaos, man. It's getting nuttier, it seems like, every month. And the tendency, if you're not careful, is you'll be aligning your heart and how you're going to feel each day or who you're going to be each day based on what's going on horizontally all over the globe. And it, it is only retaining a focus on Jesus Christ and his glory and his promises and his rule. That's the only thing that delivers us from this world. And, and friends, I know we're going to be evacuated off of planet Earth one day that Jesus Christ said he would return and establish his rule. So we already know it's going to come, but I want to tell you something. There's just something in my heart, I'm going to say it this way at the risk of being misunderstood. I don't want to wait for him to do all of it. I want to be pursuing that kind of intimacy and awareness of him now. I want it by faith now because that's the only way I can get it now. And I don't want to wait until Jesus comes and wraps it all up for us and makes it happen before I start really just kind of inclining and, 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 and catapulting my heart in his direction. So what, what does John see? Look at the focus of John in the first three verses. First of all, I note that there is an invitation from heaven. Look at heaven's invitation in verse 1. So John has delivered the messages in chapter 2 and 3 to the seven churches. And now after that, he looks and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. 
And I will show you what must take place after this. I love that verse. Remember where John is? He's, he's basically exiled to the island of Patmos, and you can't get off the island. I mean, it's a rocky crag out there off the southwest coast of Turkey. It's about the same. It's a little bit uh, smaller than, than Hilton Head. And that's where John's living out his octogenarian years. He's, no, he's even beyond that. He's in his 90s. He's close to 100 years old. And you, you don't get off the island. And so he's stuck. He's in solitude. He's serving out the last of his years there on the Isle of Patmos as a, as a criminal. And they've exiled him there because of preaching the gospel. And yet the Lord goes to him on that island. And he says, hey, you want to get out of here for a little bit? Hey, John. And God cracks a door open. Now, John is going to tell us in a moment that he goes immediately into the Spirit. But I want to tell you something. The indication is that prior to this, that he's just having a day. He's having a normal day. And then the Lord begins to come to John and inviting him to move into a different realm through worship and vision. And so the door opens in heaven. So John looks up, the door opens in heaven, and he hears either in the spirit or with the audible ear, he hears a voice saying, come on up. I'm going to show you some things that are going to take place. And now look immediately. Now he is immediately taken up and look at heaven's atmosphere. He says this at once, at once I was in the spirit. So the door opens in heaven Heaven's invitation is, come up here. I'm going to show you some things. And immediately, John is for the second time in four chapters, lets the reader know, immediately I was in the Spirit. Now, we don't often know what to do with that. But let me give you the, the very minimum that that means. That whether consciously or unconsciously, whether his body remained physically on the island of Patmos or his whole being, including his body, got caught up to heaven, we don't know. But John entered an entirely different realm than the natural. That means that the biggest component of who John was became aware and became in, or, or entered into heaven's realm. And friends, listen, I understand that that's not overly practical, but I'm just going to ask you, could you think of a better moment to happen to you on a Wednesday? That God might open up the door and say, hey, do you, you want to come up here for a little bit? And immediately you're in the spirit. That means you are transcending time and space and matter and all of your human limitations. They're not active. They're not holding you back. And you are brought up, Whether and I can't tell you how. It's not a forensic thing. It's not a scientific thing. It's a kingdom thing. It's a relational thing. It's a spiritual thing. And John is caught up through this open door into heaven, and there he is, and he's recognizing, I am in the Spirit. Hallelujah. Well, look in verses at the end of verse number 2 and end of verse 3. When he gets there, the first thing he takes note of is heaven's king. Heaven's invitation brings him to heaven's atmosphere where the central focus is going to be heaven's king. He says, behold, that means stop, look, listen. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, this is where things in the book of Revelation really start getting um, creative. This is where you're just going to have to let your mind go there. That when John got there, he was immediately focused upon heaven's throne. 
the central ruling place of the entire cosmos. That in that throne, when, by the way, a lesser throne, Caesar's throne, had, had condemned John to the Isle of Patmos. And it's, it's just amazing to me that as the Lord is in working in chapters 1 and 4 with John personally, he wants John to be reminded, John, Caesar's not in charge, I am. My throne is higher than Caesar's. My authority is greater than Caesar's. My power is greater than Caesar's. And John, you belong around my throne. I actually invited you into my throne room. Caesar doesn't get an invitation here, but John, you're my beloved. You come on in. And the first thing he sees is that throne. But the throne is described, and we're going to go a little bit later and talk about the one sitting on the throne, but the whole atmosphere, the glory is coming off of the one seated on the throne. And, and friends, a lot of people want to make a hard distinction. Is it God the Father on the throne? Is it Jesus on the throne? You're going to find in the book of Revelation that you're going to find both Father and Son occupying the throne. And I'm not going to split hairs because they're one. But if, if I can lean one way, I'm going to make this about Jesus being on the throne because he's visible and he's already been described in bodily form. But his glory is coming off and John seems to be at a loss of words as he's writing this. He he talks about jasper and carnelian and emerald and a rainbow. And then he's going to talk about the, the crystal floor of glass or the sea of glass. And I didn't even know what a carnelian was. I had to do some Googling today. I, I wasn't even real sure I knew what a jasper was. But what I get from these two stones and, and the radiance of the glory coming off of Jesus is that both of them seem to carry a dark color, but one is opaque and one is translucent. And so I don't know what to make all of that. I don't even think we should get too bogged down in the details of saying, well, the carnelian represents this and the jasper represents this and the emerald represents this. I'd rather take a step back and just say this. Whatever John saw, he had never seen anything like that on earth. It was staggering. And it was emanating from that central place of the throne of heaven. It is a description that defies the English language, or in John's case, the Greek language, to be able to give expression to. All I know is that when his eyes were opened, he was stunned because the whole throne was surrounded in a radiant glory. And immediately, John knows he's in the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Why do I even bother telling that? Because that's not something you, you don't get to live out chapter number four and verse number three because there's just not any kind of, there's no command. There's nothing to do. Right. Walking with Jesus is not all about just doing something for him. Sometimes he wants you to do nothing. Sometimes he wants you to just stand there and take an hour, take a day, Take a week and let all of the doing be done by somebody else. And he wants you to say, will you just listen and focus and don't do anything? Just let your heart yield to me in my glory. Let Just be refreshed and be renewed and go back to your first love and just recognize I am the great I am. I am everlasting, I am, I am eternal, I am glorious, and I am very, very good to you. And I just want you to be with me. A lot of us that are wired to do, and I'm one of those people, I'm wired to do, we, we actually have to wrestle through the feeling of guilt and negligence if we're not doing something at times for God. But the older you get, you realize some of the best things that can be done for God is just to be done with God. Just not do anything, just sit and listen and soak and just contemplate that this glorious God sitting upon the throne, he really is there. 
This really is his universe. He really did make himself known to you personally. He really did make it personal to you. And this God is, is emanating a glory in such a way that, that we don't have words to describe it. Say, Jeff, I don't get it. Right, that's why you have to quit doing so much and start just soaking and listening and just let him speak to you. Friends, I will say this. Worship is, is not just what we do when we get together. We do do that when we get together. But worship is just the posture of our heart towards the, the one we love the most. It's just the constant receiving and yielding, receiving and yielding, and recognizing that he doesn't need anything we have, but he invites us to participate in what he's doing. But there are times where he, literally, you do it with your kids. How many of you have ever said to a child or a grandchild, will you just sit still? You've said that, right? And, and there have been times where you're trying to do something for your child. I mean, I, I, I do, Landon is such a doer, too. He's just a poor guy. He's in all of my illustrations now. But he's just, he, he, he moves. And what I'm teaching him right now is you have to just stop and listen and look, look at me. Because I will start giving him the first of five instructions. And as soon as I begin the first, he's moving in it. I'm like, dude, I got four more, man. Just, just wait a second. We all tell our kids at times, just, just be still. Just be. Well, so does God. God. God wants to you to hear him sometimes just saying, I actually don't need your help. God will tell you that. I, I really don't need your help. I want to include you, but what's more important right now is that you just get to be with me. And friends, it, it is. It has to begin as a discipline for a lot of us. Now, some of y'all are like my wife. Y'all are just laid back and you say, yeah, I don't have any problem. I'm not doing anything. I can just be with the Lord. That's my greatest delight. But others of us are wired to accomplish something. And frankly, we have a harder time with worship sermons because he doesn't give us anything to do except to be enthralled with him. And you can't be enthralled with him when you're a moving target. You say, I don't, I don't believe that, Jeff. Really? What do you do when you go to the gas station to refuel your vehicle? You put it in park. Try to fuel a moving vehicle. It doesn't work. It's a mess and it's dangerous. And so sometimes we have to just put life in park and let the Lord pour into us so that he can refuel us for the next mile down the road. So go into verses 6 through 11 with me because this is where it gets really interesting. And I want you to remember, this is the Holy Bible. This is actually heaven's reality, what we're about to read. Look at the focus of the heavenly creatures. The King James that I grew up on called them, and I think they called them the beasts. I, I like heavenly creatures better because beasts sounds kind of spooky and, and scary, but these heavenly creatures, they're, they're unlike any, any creature on earth. So the translator just picked the word beast back in 1611, but, but here in the ESV, they're called heavenly creatures. So let's just talk about how these creatures appear. Look in verse number six down towards the end of it. Around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. So the throne's in the middle and around each side of it is a living creature. These creatures are full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Now, this, I mean, every time I read this, I got a little bit of a warped sense of humor. I think of the Star Wars cantina scene. 
Remember the cantina in Star Wars where everywhere you look, there's just something weird, it's just whether it's sitting up at the bar or sitting at a table and just kind of creepy and weird. Now, don't, don't look all religious on me. Relax just a little bit. I'm not, I'm not saying that heaven's weird. I'm just saying I don't have a grid for creatures that are flying around the throne with six wings and eyes on the inside and outside, by the way. I don't know how John knew that, but the Bible says that they have eyes on the outside, full of them, and on the inside. Now, go ahead. I think the Hebrew word or the Greek word is creepy. That's just kind of, it's, it's strange. It's strange, but these are created by God. And by the way, in Ezekiel, I think it's chapter number one, Ezekiel describes a similar setting. Isaiah describes a similar setting with, with uh, beings like this. And so these are creatures that you can find in the Old Testament. You're finding them here in the back of your Bible. These creatures are existing in heaven right now. There's, there's some form of angelic being that are glorious, some combination of either seraphim or cherubim and these angels that were created by God to, to worship him and to serve him and ministers of a flaming fire. But these, one's got a face like a lion and the other like an ox and then one like an eagle and then one like a man. Say, Jeff, oh great teacher, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. There's a lot of great Christians, writers, that surmise on what this is and what this represents. I'd just rather be honest with you. I don't have to make it represent anything to know it's good. It's strange. I don't really understand it. But I know that God created these creatures to fly around His throne, and they just look strange to us because we don't have anything like that down here. John didn't panic. John didn't flee. John didn't flip out or anything. John just described them and he gave no explanation. And so I think we ought to follow John and just say, God created creatures, beings, angels that are surrounding the throne, that are symbolic and representative of something that we may not be able to understand. And the best we can do is listen to what other people came up with. But the fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't tell us what it represents. And so what we want to look at and we just want to say, wow, God creates some very interesting things. Then you get down into the end of verse number 8. This is the most important thing. What are these worshiping creatures declaring? That's what I want to get to. So there they are, and day and night, they never cease saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So I want you to get this. 600,000 years ago in heaven, God was on his throne. And these four creatures were flying around or all around the throne. And every single nanosecond, every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every year, every century, every millennia, going back to eternity past, these creatures have one supreme calling that hasn't diminished a bit. And what is that? It is to worship and praise and adulate God in the presence, night and day, never stopping. They, they just magnify him and magnify him and magnify him and magnify him. They never call in sick. They never get bored. They never get tired. Why? Because they are in the proximity. They are the closest inner circle to the actual presence of the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And they are in his presence and they are stricken in their, their beings. And they say, oh, he's holy. He's holy. 
He's holy. Oh, this is the God, John, who was. This is the God, John, that you see is. And John, this is the God who will ever be. And so they, they proclaim his eternality. And, and they're just mind-blowing in what they're saying. They take the biggest truth, the truth that has baffled us all of our lives, our children, we as children, have asked, how could God always have been? When did God start? How did God come into being? And there's no answer because he's always been. He created time that we would even dare try to measure his existence by. He's beyond it. And these angels don't try to give you a mathematical, scientific explanation. They just say, what you need to know about this one on the throne is that he's holy. That holiness of God, my friends, is the very essence of his nature. His holiness and his love. In our generation, it is very prominent to magnify his love while just kind of pushing his holiness aside. In other words, if we're not wise, if we're not careful, if we're not central, uh, having the throne central to our lives, we will enjoy and receive every good word that comes our way about the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we should receive that. But with equal intensity, we need to remember that that God who loves is a God who is infinitely holy. And so we don't just casually saunter. We don't just kind of flippantly engage him. We don't toss him around in goofy jokes. We, we treat that name and that person, the person of God, with reverence. And when we come into the reality that this God who is loving is also a God that is boundlessly holy every now and then we're going to get prostrate we're going to go low there are moments brothers and sisters where the most appropriate thing for a christian to do is to be so overwhelmed with this glorious god and the holiness of this god that the only thing we can do not in cowering fear like a slave but in reverential awe and gratitude and adoration, we just, either in our hearts or in our bodies or, or both, we just get low. I'll make a couple of statements here just to exhort you. The Bible teaches that spiritual leaders are to provoke you. Did you know that? That one of my callings, I'm going to have to answer to the Lord, Jeff, did you provoke the people of Newbridge? I said, as often as I could, I did. I'm going to provoke you, but it says provoke you unto love and good works. In other words, your heart and your behavior so that you might love the Lord more, love each other more, but also that that love might have an outflow in, in, in how we're living our lives. Friends, I want to tell you, when we will move more deeply, intentionally, willfully into a consecration and pursuit of the Lord, Life begins to unfold in layers that have been dormant up until that point. You will see, hear, and experience elements of the Christian life that we never got when our foremost goal was just to attend the next conference or Bible study. It is so personal that you don't have to wait for Sunday in the building to open because chances are your deepest moments of worship will not happen in this room. They, sh they actually shouldn't. The most intimate moments are usually between two parties. And that's true in a marriage, and that's also true in your relationship with God. 
Because we come in and we celebrate together. That's like going to the, the great family reunion and just listening to Papa on, on, on a family reunion, the patriarch of the family. That's Sunday. Sunday is celebration. Let's all get together in the presence of Papa. But intimacy and worship and the deepening moments are, can be all other times during the week, just times when it's you and him. And there's no condemnation in what I'm saying right now because some of you are saying, well, Jeff, I, I, I've never done that. I don't know how to do that. I, none of us know how to do it. You, you learn as you do it. If we all had to know how to do it before beginning, we'd never begin. Well, let me tell you what happens. He begins to draw you out. He begins to stir. He begins to give you a distaste for other things that once consumed you. you, you, you the, the world becomes increasingly dim to you. You get ruined for the world because it's just not all that it used to be because you've met Jesus on some level, and he just keeps wooing you. He just keeps calling you deeper, and so you, you, you draw near unto him, and he says, okay, I'm going to draw near unto you. And as that, as that proximity comes together, you, you realize in those moments more and more, he's, he's what I want. He, he's who's most important. I, I've lost some things. I've, I've had some things taken from me. I've, I've messed up and forfeited some things. But here he is. He's still with me. I love him. And as you move into that, friends, that's where you learn worship. It's not some instantaneous holy zap from heaven. That's not the way it really works. Worship is, is, a, is a growing relationship with one that you can't see by sight, or up to this point, I haven't. But I, I, I've seen them by faith, which is really good, by the way. And so this, this issue of pressing into him, it's practical in the sense that, yes, you do have to do something. You have to serve him in that sense to facilitate these intimate moments but what you do have to do is you have to exalt him in your heart to the thing you just can't do without that no matter what i must pursue jesus i must have intimacy with the lord and i'm going to tell you say well jeff teach us how to do that i, I don't even know that i can I, nobody taught me I mean, there were some disciplines along the way that maybe kind of got me th through the beginning of the labyrinth, but ultimately, there comes a season in your life where you just begin to meet him, and you, you, you realize, okay, I, I've, I've done this long enough, I do realize how I connect with him, where I connect with him, when I connect with him, and literally, the, the people that I know that are the, the most deep worshipers of the Lord and love the Lord the most... They not only meet him everywhere, but they also have a consecrated time and place to meet with him regularly. It's usually the same place around the same time. So there are disciplines that lead to it, but ultimately it's just this issue of coming before the Lord and just saying, you're amazing, you're holy, you're good. And as my heart rises, Lord, I feel like my knees just want to bend because I just want to get small in your sight because I just want to surrender all that I am to you. And friends, that is the essence of worship. It's not about what happens on Sunday. Sunday's great. But I, I, I'm, I'm increasingly fearful as I continue to, to serve in the kingdom that we're creating cultures that people think that the, the, the gathering is the most important time to worship. The gathering's important. It's very important. But not independently of us meeting with the Lord privately during the week. So where do these worshiping creatures, we've seen what they declare, we've seen how they appear. Look in verse 9, and let's just notice 
where they're looking. The, we're going to, yeah, we'll, we'll pick up here in verse 9. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And we'll pick up, back up in, in verse 9 in a little bit. But notice this. The living creatures are intentionally giving glory, honor, and thanks. Intertwine those three threads. Glory, honor, and thanks. Don't try to peel them apart because it's more expressive of what's coming out of them. I do find it interesting, though. Let me make mention of this one thing. I started thinking, I was like, these, these creatures that are so strange-looking, who have the ability to communicate, and their foremost communication, they're, we're not told they say anything else, is they're, they're unceasingly declaring the worth and the holiness of God Almighty. And the Bible says that in the mix of it, we're not given any other particulars of what they say, but they're, they're ascribing unto him glory. That means they're just magnifying his infinite worth. They're somehow communicating that. They're honoring him, and that's a relational aspect. The glory, God's glorious alone. The honor is when a lesser creature connects to the, the foremost being, who, who is the Lord. And so they honor him. They're seeing themselves in the light of his glory. So naturally, they, they say, we, we are inferior. He is supreme. We want to we honor him. By the way, I think that's really good for your life and mine. We have to remember that our lives are vehicles of honoring the Lord. We're the lesser, he's the greater. We're the limited, he's the supreme. Um, listen, he's the source. We get to partake of the resources. And, and the, the beauty of this is that they also give thanks. And I did, I had to stop there and I was like, well, they're not saved because they didn't sin. They don't have any needs because they're in a perfect state of being, in a perfect paradise, in a, in a, with a perfect king. What are they thanking him for? He, he's, he's not meeting their needs in the sense of them having a need that they had to wait on to get met. There's just something about being in his presence that brings this thanksgiving and gratitude out of them. And I'm going to give you my opinion I always like to announce when I'm going to give you my opinion because it frees you up to say, I don't agree with that. So you can do that if you want, but I'm going to give you my opinion. The only thing I could think of was this. I believe they're thanking him for letting them be near to him. They're thanking him for letting them be near to him. Friends, have you ever thought about that? Because we, we all go through seasons when uh, the spirit of grumbling takes place. The root of bitterness takes place. Anger, discouragement, feeling ripped off, feeling like you got done wrong. We've all gone through seasons like that. For, for some, that, that season gets really rooted down and starts becoming your aroma. And I found this, that the, the chief way for me to exit a season like that is just to strip everything else away and just come again to that place of saying, I can't believe you love me. I can't believe you called my name. I can't believe not only do you love me and call my name and save me, but you're actually still sticking with me after all of the foul-ups I've made in my life. And so, Lord, thank you. You know, let's say it with our lips. I actually think it, the Lord likes to hear us verbalize our gratitude, but I'm going to tell you, really, more so from our lips, let's live gratefully. Let's live out tomorrow thankful. 
And you'll be tested on it. We are every day. But you literally, you've got to say to yourself, who am I? Who is he? What has he made me? Who am I in light of who he is? And why am I letting all this earthbound stuff that's all temporary, that's going to be burned up at the end of the age? I mean, everything I can touch, see, or feel. Excuse me. Yeah, feel like with my hands. Any of those things, they're all tangible things, all material things. They're gone. The end of the age, you're not taking any of it with you. And yet that's what causes us the most distress in this life, including our own physical bodies. And I don't want to make light of physical suffering. It's terrible. But eventually you've got to turn loose of the body you're in and you're going to get a brand new one. So he's even going to replace that. And yet we, we clutch and we hold on. And if we could just learn from the crazy looking living creatures in, a, in Revelation chapter number four who are enamored with his holiness... And, and, and they're blown away to where they want to glorify him and honor him and thank him. And they're probably the happiest beings in all of the known universe. Last thing, the focus of the elders. I intentionally left them last. I know I piggy, or leapfrogged over them earlier, but I didn't forget about them. I want to use their words in these last few moments. Look at the focus of the elders. Very simply, the elders, who are they? We'll talk about it in a second. They were fixated upon his throne. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Uh, Just quickly here, when you read Revelation chapter number 4, you're going to find that in these 11 verses, I think 12 times the throne of God is mentioned. The the message of Revelation chapter 4 is look at the throne. Look at the throne. Look at the throne and the one who's sitting on it. God is saying, I want me, I want my son, I want my rule, my kingdom, my majesty. I want it to be the owner of your heart's attention. I want you to know that I'm ruling. I want you to know that I am chief. I want you to know that I have all things working together for good unto those that uh, love me and are called according to my purpose. I want you to know that I'm not up here wringing my hands. I want you to know that I'm not worried about Russia. I'm not worried about North Korea. I'm not worried about President Trump. I'm not worried about Iran. I'm not worried about Syria. I'm I'm not worried. I'm not a worrying God. I'm really, really happy because I'm running the show. It's his throne. 12 times in 11 verses, the throne, the throne. John got up there. He was focused on the throne. The heavenly creatures, where were they? Right in the inner circle around the throne. They were flying around the throne. And now when you see these elders, they're they're on that second concentric circle. You have the throne, you have the four beasts, and then around them you have the 24 elders. Who are they? I don't know. I mean, I do have a guess. And again, my opinion, shot block it if you want, but it's probably representative of the 12 sons of Jacob and that there are also 12 uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the, the, the representation of the 12 apostles. That's my best guess. Regardless, look at what's going on with them. They're clothed in white, which is descriptive in the New Testament. Robes of white are descriptive of righteousness imparted. Not their own righteousness, but the, the pristine brilliance of the righteousness of Jesus that is on these 24 representatives. And they are also 
uh, they have golden crowns on their head. So it speaks of their, their righteousness and it speaks of their victory. And again, where is it all coming from? The throne. I, I can tell you, when was it? I don't have to go back too far. Recently, I, just, I was wrestling through just my own sinfulness. Uh, you ever have one of those days where you, nobody has to tell you you're a sinner? <laughs> you just kind of know it. I mean, I, I just, and again, I'm a saint who sins. I'm not a sinner who occasionally does saintly things. My identity is that of a saint because of what Jesus Christ has done. But I'm still working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm still contending with the flesh. And the Bible says the flesh and the spirit, they, they make war with each other. And whichever one you feed more is going to be the one who wins that day. And so there are days where my flesh is seemingly winning, and I don't feel saved. I don't feel righteous. I don't feel like I should even show my face in my house or, or, or stand in a pulpit. And then I just remember, oh, yeah, but I'm actually 100% righteous in the eyes of God because my identity is not in my performance on any given day. My identity is in who Jesus is and what he did for me. And so I've just actually got a robe of, of, of righteousness on. That's just kind of the way God sees me. That's the way he sees you that are in Christ. But it also speaks of their, their victory. They got a crown on their head. They made it all the way through. They've entered into paradise and they're being rewarded. And so these elders are there and they're around the throne and they're fixated on it. But look what's coming out of the throne there in verse 5. It's, it's flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. I mean, this is big time, better than Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. I mean, this is the glory of God, and it's coming off in waves of intensity. Don't, have you ever pictured heaven like God just, and I do this sometimes, just sometimes I picture God as the bearded kind of grandfatherly, and he's going to take us up, and he's just joyful. And I, I think there's some aspect to heaven that's like that. But in Revelation chapter 4, he's seated intensely on a throne, and lightning's coming off of him. And thunders echoing through the caverns of heaven. And by the way, if you'll follow that kind of description through the book of Revelation, let me tell you what it is. It always is connected at some point to judgment that's coming. And so in the early chapters of the book of Revelation in chapter number 4, even in this worship setting, you're seeing the intensity of Yahweh, the intensity of God Almighty beginning to build and it's about to be unleashed on rebellious and defiant planet earth. And so that lightning is there in the glory and that thunder is there in the glory and it's peeling off of him and it's just really, really intense. And so what do the elders do? Well, they're not giving high fives to each other. I can tell you that. Look down at verse number 10. Here it is. They were prostrate before his throne. So the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. And I'll get to what they say at the end of the message. So here they are. They're glorified. They're redeemed. They're in perfect standing. They're the representatives of the human race just seated in, in a ruling, a co-heir capacity with Jesus. But when his glory starts moving, when the rumblings come, where the, where the lightning is coming off, these that represent us in the book of Revelation have an instinctual call upon their lives. Nobody had to say a word. Nobody blew a whistle and said, fall down. They just fell down. And they're worshiping and they take those crowns and they, they literally, our rewards and our victory only came from you, O king. And friends, that is the heart of of worship. Nothing to lose, nothing to prove. So fixated 
on this one name, Jesus, that you recognize all who you are, all that you have, is only a testimony to his goodness and his grace. And they physically were brought to the ground. Um, I'm very tempted to just run a very short rabbit trail here. In our gatherings, you need to leave room in your theology and in your comfort zone for the fact that there will be times occasionally where the glory of God will move so powerfully that some will be laid out. It's not something we're always comfortable with. We don't try to encourage it. We're not, trying, we're not going to pop them in the forehead and make sure they go down. But I want to tell you something. When the glory of the Lord hits somebody, and if you'll remember in Acts chapter number 9, the glory of the Lord shined over the Saul of Tarsus, knocked him down, but didn't knock anybody else down. So the Lord can be selective in who he wants to pour it out on. And what we need to do is recognize, okay, let's leave that to the Lord to judge whether it's authentic or not authentic. In the meantime, I'm, people have asked me, said, Jeff, so-and-so got laid out last Sunday. I was like, I didn't even see it. How could you not see it? You were on stage. I was like, yeah, I was actually looking at the throne. I was actually fixated on the throne. I, I actually didn't notice. Why? Because that's not really my focus in worship. And friends, the more we'll get caught up in him, the less we'll get tangled up in stuff that's happening around us. So they cast down their thrones, and here's what they said. And I'm, i got about three minutes because I'm going to take a little extra. They were vocal before his throne. Worthy are you, Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. You're worthy of the glory and the honor and our ascription of power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed. And for you they were created. This is a confession of redeemed humanity who in the presence of the Lord, he's already been told, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy. Right now, those same creatures are flying around the throne doing that. They've been doing it since you woke up this morning. They haven't missed a beat. They will be doing it when you step into glory. You will see them. You'll see these creatures. And you will have glorified eyes and you will consider it as strange as it sounds to us now. It will be beautiful to you then because the whole context will be your reality. You will see these creatures. 